This is the Media Week Industry Podcast from the people at mediaweek.com.au. Welcome to a new Media Week podcast. My guest today, Josh Zepps. Welcome, Josh. It's lovely to be here. Now, Thanks how should I describe me. you? A multimedia... Oh, um, I don't know. Charming, um, debonair, man of the world. I mean, pod- international man of mystery. Podcaster, um, pioneering sort of online TV... Go on. <laughs> Continue... <laughs> Uh, when I when Comedian, I this was, a voice. A, this was always a difficulty when I was filling out the customs forms coming back into the country, and they say profession. <laughs> so now I just put either media or broadcaster. I mean, I well, that's uh, interesting. You could say you could just put the sector and not be specific. About yeah, the I mean, role. well, that's partly just because I don't want them spying on me and knowing <laughs> too much about my, about me anyway. But I think, I mean, when I. I mean, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a television presenter and a radio broadcaster, I think of myself as. I just happen to have the good fortune to be coming of age at a time when we've got a crossover between old media and new, and that's a kind of interesting space that I find myself occupying, as much by happenstance as anything else, just because my previous job was at HuffPost Live, which, which sort of had the remit of trying to figure out a way to do interesting video, interesting streaming television sure. online. Yeah, although it's very challenging times for, for people in the media, it would... Uh, there would be a lot more people working in the sector now, wouldn't there, than than Well, there's a lot more... Whether they're getting paid... <laughs> there are probably, probably fewer people getting paid middle-class salaries yes. in media than there was 20 or 30 years ago, but there are more people putting out content. Yeah. And, and I mean, that's... For better or for, for worse. better or for worse, yeah. A lot of it stinks, I can tell you that for nothing, James. Um, I mean, I think that there is a... Uh, <laughs> I think there are more opportunities now, obviously, and this sounds like a cliche, there are more opportunities than there ever have been, but finding ways to monetize them and, and get the audience reach is probably harder than it was when you, ha- when you just became a cadet journalist at the Sydney Morning Herald and work your way up. Sure. Now, it's been quite a while since... How long since you worked in Australia? I mean... Ten years? Was that long? Yeah, a long time. Okay. I mean, if you exclude, you know, I popped back well, after Charlie Pickering left the, the project uh, and before Waleed became the the, uh, the presenter of that show, I came back and did it uh, for a little while. And, yeah. Um, so little bits and pieces so like that. So you've guested here and there. So I've guested here and there and I'll be hosting ABC uh, evenings uh, over the over the Christmas break. So little things Will like that. Will that be national or just That's national, Wales, although, that's, Wales, although it'll be heard on your local yes. radio station, right? Yep. So it's not Radio National, it's the... No. It's seven seven oh two in radio Sydney, seven seven four in Melbourne. Yep. Um, okay. But but yes, from next Monday it goes. Okay, national. which leads me to say you won't be offended then if I say there'll be some people who won't know much about. Oh, you, absolutely right? not. I mean, even so, I'm not. I'm so not offended by that <laughs> that even when I was at my most successful in Australia, I wasn't a celebrity yet. Mm. Yeah, well, they yeah. they knew your voice, maybe, maybe, and stuff maybe like that. a little. Yeah, yeah, yeah okay, yeah. Well, that's great because you've got you've got an amazing CV. I mean, you've done stuff, just all sorts of stuff that I want I want to ask about. So, but we we're going to focus, and it's all media stuff too. So it's great. So if you don't mind reliving some of that for no, of us, course. because talking it, about myself is never is never never something I will shy away from doing. There are two what? things that I will always be keen to do, James: talk about myself and read my own prose aloud. Well, it's sort of a bit of a prerequisite for a podcaster in a way, isn't it? <laughs> Even though you're really there to get information out of others, you you actually reveal a lot about yourself in that process, don't well, you? Well, that's I an think. important so, point that I think we can come back to when we're talking when when perhaps discussing the the future of what is going to work in media and what is yes, not. Because I yeah. think 
I think authenticity and having actual open conversations that don't sound like they're stilted and don't sound like they're um, formulaic sure. is, is sort of the way to go. But let's, right. let's table that for now. Yeah, yeah. And talk okay. about me. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, now, Sydney Radio 2UE. Yeah. Mike Carlton was the host. Yes. It was Breakfast. That's right. Now, it was, was Drive it, when I started. It was Drive, was it? And okay. then he moved to Breakfast. Now, was it Friday News Review? Yes. It was, wasn't it? Right, That's right. Okay. So it, start, it didn't start with Friday News Review. It actually all came about because... I went to uni uh, at UTS and Sydney Uni to do journalism. Mm-hmm. I knew I wanted to work in broadcasting and, and be on the telly or on the radio, but it struck me that I could either become a stand-up comic, which I didn't really have any interest in telling jokes about aeroplane food. You know, I didn't like... It, it's possible that if I'd been growing up with comedy, with a wider comedy horizon in an era a little bit more like today when there are more interesting people doing more interesting things in comedy. I would yes. have felt like it was a way of getting in. But at the time, it, it, it felt superficial, facile, didn't play to my strengths because I'm a bit of an intellectual nerd, and a bit of a science <laughs> wonk and, a, and a, like a politics nerd and a philosophy geek. So it just felt... And like, that comes, and we'll get to this later, but that's all too obvious from your We, Are, or we The People Live podcast. But my, but, my esoteric detachment yes, from the reality yes, of humankind. But, but I'll, I'll save that for later. And I, and I say that now because I don't want people thinking, oh, we're not going to just relive the glory days of old no, media. No, we will get, we will get to now There's some really future. interesting stuff that we'll get to, but, Good. but I, that helps set the scene. So sorry yeah. to go back to that. No, yeah. sure. So that sort of ruled out stand-up. And I, I went to uni for journalism uh, and philosophy and um, did a lot of improv comedy while I was there and came out of, out of uni and got a job in, as a producer in talk radio, basically at 2SM with, like, Clive Robertson and okay, Howard yep. Sattler. <laughs> Went to work for Alan Jones over at 2GB. Wow. Um, he and I are still, are still good friends. Now, you were uh, quite young. This I was young, yeah. Year, I mean, yeah. I was straight out, of, uh, yeah. straight out of uni. I took a year off between high school and uni to travel the world and backpack around, and then I deferred for six months to briefly work on uh, ABC Comedy in Melbourne, which is not a particularly interesting anecdote to, that's worth <laughs> citing, but uh, my, my proper professional career began in radio. And it was actually the Chaser Boys who had a segment, a comedy segment on Mike Carlton's drive show from 3 to 6 p.m., on, they did a little funny sketch of some kind on 2UE. And they were sort of a bit above me in university and they, we were all on debating on various debating teams and I was sort of aware of their existence. And when they got their first ABC show, I said to them, well, if you're not going you know, to have enough time to do Mike's show anymore, then maybe I could pitch something to him. And I happened to do good impressions and I'd been doing voiceovers since I was uh, a young, really young pup. Um, and I said, why don't I just put together a little voice of John Howard and Alexander Downer doing various things and sent that <laughs> CD to Mike Carlton and it tickled his, uh, his fancy. And so we started doing a weekly segment called John Howard's Diary, The right, Private yes. Thoughts of a Prime Minister, where I would just rant about John Howard for, as John Howard for a, a minute or two. Uh, and it was then when Mike got promoted to breakfast from Drive that... We got more money, we got more attention, we resurrected Friday News Review, we turned it into a daily thing, and I was basically doing daily comedy, daily satirical comedy sketches for him. Okay. And and did you, like, pre-record a bunch, or did you go in daily? What, how did you I used work? to go in daily when he was on breakfast the day before, and I'd pitch him a few ideas of sketches we could do. He'd say yes or no to one of them. I'd go off and write the, the sketch, 
email him the script, he'd touch it up, and we'd usually record it together because sometimes he'd do voices as, as well. Uh, and there came a point when, and I'm probably preempting your next question here, which may have something to do with when I went to the States and how I went to the States and why I went to the States, which was I, I desperately craved the experience of broadcasting in New York City, which right. I felt was and is the global Had you been there of, before this craving I, came on? I had. I'd, yep, I'd, okay. be, I'd been there when I was travelling around the world, when I was backpacking around as an 18-year-old, and I'd planned to spend a week or two there, and a month later I was still there. It was just a... Anyone who has the New York bug, I think, when they see the place, it is such an explosive kaleidoscope of cliches and Mm. stimuli that if you hate it, you hate it, and if you love it, you really love it. Yes. Uh, And I sort of vowed to myself when I was 18, you know, I went and saw Dave Letterman being taped, I went and saw Conan O'Brien being taped, I'm a big Woody Allen fan, I loved Seinfeld, there was a lot of, it had a lot of cultural baggage with it. Sure. Um, And so I said to Mike, this is, you know, what, five years, five or six years after I'd been to New York for the first time, I want to go to New York, I want to train in improv comedy at UCB Theatre, which is one of the big um, improv schools there. So instead of doing sketches which are a day old, which we've written the day before, why don't I go over, you sponsor me for a foreign correspondence visa to be in New York, which doesn't cost you anything. You just have to say that I need to be there. Just tell the American or immigration authorities that I need to be there. I'll read the, new, the Aussie newspapers when they come online at midnight or 1am Sydney time, which is morning in New York, and by the time you get into the office, you'll already have your sketch, and I'll, I'll record the audio over there and just email the audio files to the technicians at 2UE in Sydney, and they'll edit it together, and you'll have a sketch to go that's topical based on the day's news at 7am. And he took that bait, the fool that he is, <laughs> <laughs> and that was then my, my sort of ticket for a good th- three or four more years to be located okay. wherever I wanted to be in the world as long as I had a microphone and a laptop. Right. Okay, interesting stuff. Now, on your timeline, I'm not sure where this falls. Um, Idle backstage. (laughs) Yeah, this falls right about here in the timeline. Okay, so so after you'd been to New York I'd gone to New York, yep. Uh, And I I came back for season for basically I think it was the 2006 or 2007 season of Australian Idol. Right. And that was really my first television thing okay the they were launching a, an online component of Australian Idol called Idol backstage and they and the, the full clips would be on the internet and they would select out highlights of those little clips it was ba- I was basically I was the monkey host who would play practical <laughs> jokes on the judges behind the scenes and you know and interview the idols as soon as they got off stage so um, how did you get that gig though? that was actually was someone who I, I had did you known, know someone yeah or? it was just so it doesn't sound like a very Josh Zepps, you wouldn't have pitched something like no, that. No, I right? didn't. No. I didn't. It's interesting that you say it doesn't sound like a very Josh Zepps thing because some people come out of their wombs fully But only formed. after looking at where you've ended well, up now, right. Back then, maybe right. it wasn't so. Yeah, it's taken me time to evolve into the... to figure out who I am and what my sort of actual... And then I guess to have the confidence in my own perspective that being smart and being interested in the things that I'm interested in is not going to be a liability in an industry where there's all too much focus on the superficial. 
So it, back then, it was totally consistent with, with me because I was a smartass, <laughs> <laughs> which is part of my DNA that will never go away. I just, didn't, I just had not yet found a way to be able to be a smart, smartass. Were you there for a whole season of Idol? Yeah, basically the it... final 12 weeks. So once, once they weeks. go, you know, the initial... Who won that year? Do you remember? Uh, that was uh, Damien Leith was the runner. Okay. Je- yeah. Jessica Mowboy was the runner-up. Good year. Yeah, it was a great year. It was a great... I mean, this was one of the final years when it was still the biggest show in Australia. Yes. You know, the fireworks over the opera house at the finale and, and everything. It was incredible fun. And being... And it rekindled my love of live audiences, of doing things live, like the feeling, the crackle in the studio 45 seconds before you're about to go live and the energy of the crowd and everything. It reminded me that there are more important things than doing radio. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So, but after that, one year... And then you got tempted back overseas? Yeah, I had never really left overseas. Oh, okay. I, so I, you had, just, I had sublet You came back as a project to do That's this? That's right. It was, okay. it was purely a 12-week thing. I came back, did it, went back to, back to the States, um, okay. had an agent over there, and, and then soon thereafter got my first show in the States. So what was your, what was your first decent payday in the States? It was a show, it was a show on Discovery Science Channel, mm-hmm. uh, which was a weekly sort of smart-ass news... Ra- <laughs> I'm using that word a lot, aren't I? It's telling. <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> it was a, a huge. Humorous- don't like smart-asses, <laughs> tune off now. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, it, was a, it, was a, it was a weekly... I don't know, there's a show called The Soup. I don't know if you... Yeah, of course, yeah. John yeah. McHale. That's right, John Previously, McHale. Previously, I can't remember who did it before. Him, yeah, but, uh, yeah, that's right. Um, it Greg, was basically... Greg Kinney. Was it Greg Kinney? Did Greg Kinnear do it? Maybe. So. Maybe they called it something Talk Soup. It was Talk Soup. It was soup. Talk Soup. Yeah. Yep. And, and now it's the soup. the soup. Yes, that's yeah. right. So you know, so it's a let me use the word again, <laughs> smart arsey <laughs> rap of the week's uh, news and pop culture. And and Discovery Science Channel was feeling a little bit nerdy uh, and a little bit staid and boring and wanted to spice themselves Can't up. Can't imagine why. <laughs> <laughs> but a great brand to be working with Discovery. Great brand, wow. yes. Mm-hmm. So I was able, so they gave me this show. I was the creative producer of it and the the presenter of it. It was a weekly thing, and it got syndicated to a bunch of different countries. Big in Greece, apparently. Really? Yes. Greece is the only place where, where I'm actually a star. I wow. walk down the street in Athens and get recognised. Uh, and that. Um, that was a lot of fun, and it also, you know, there was a lot of opportunities to host some things on the main Discovery Channel as well, some one-off specials and things mm-hmm. about, yeah. How long did that news. last? Not long, James. <laughs> Not very long. Is it a bit too edgy, you think, for some people within the the broadcast? To be or honest, look... A bit the, off, bit the, off um, core, sort of, I don't know. The easiest explanation is that the global financial crisis was going on. Okay. And it was not a great time to be a small, expensive show on a boutique cable network that, moreover, was topical, so couldn't easily be syndicated in reruns. So you can't run it forever, can you? There was no advertising. I mean, this was 2009, 2010. Uh, You know, it it wasn't as bad here in Australia, but in the States it was really bad. No one was spending any money on anything. So that's my excuse for not having (laughs) produced a good show. (laughs) Well, it was short run anyway. We didn't say it wasn't good. We did three seasons of it, which is good enough. That's good. You know, sometimes you get axed halfway through the first. Absolutely, but at least you get a discovery stamp on your CV. That's right. That's right. Which, Which doesn't... Not many people get. Yeah. Now I should put that on my customs form next time I come. <laughs> Discovery Science Channel alum. Um, Channel One News. Tell me about that. 
That was really, you know, until you just said that, I wouldn't. If you'd asked me to list all the jobs that I've had, I would not even have remembered it. <laughs> We're going way too deep then. <laughs> you are. This is far, far too detailed. Well, exhaustive research. Uh, Trump's just... just won the presidency, James. There are more important things to talk about than Channel One bloody news. Uh, what is Channel One news? Channel One news. It's not New a, York one, is it? No, it's not no, New it's York not. one. It's terribly confusing. Yeah. It's actually it's a production of CBS. At the time that I was there, it was a production of CBS News, which incidentally had also produced Motor. Discovery Science Channel show. Yes. It's all a bit confusing in the States. Like, you have... Yeah, it's really bizarre. You've got, like... You'll have CBS productions producing sitcoms that air on NBC and compete with CBS shows and stuff, so it's all weird. Yeah. But CBS News Productions was producing a newscast for schools. So it's actually a... It goes out to high schools uh, around America, and... Uh, it's it's sort of their it's their way of te- of making sure that student the students are up to date with what everything that's going on in the world. So it's basically a a, a young, fun, teenage oriented half hour uh, news show. Uh-huh. And uh-huh. and it, it was really just a stopgap paycheck for me. In hindsight, in between uh, the Discovery Science Channel show and my next real gig. Okay, I'm getting to your next real gig, but I've got, <laughs> I've, I've got one. Is, I've got one other thing. Which is probably one of the it headlines. It says online. Probably one of the headlines. You took a piss it. on January 23rd, 2009. Oh, what sorry. Was the, what okay, I'll, like? I'll cross that question off then. <laughs> um, what was happening to your, your comedy career during this time? Were you sort of what de- comedy career? Were James? you developing that? Did you want to do? Mm. I was still doing improv on yeah. and off in New York. I did all... Uh, so is the difference between improv and stand-up? Is yeah, so stand-up is... Um, just straight, getting up, one, telling gags. Is, yes, is one person getting up in front of a crowd with material that they've okay. pre-written. And, and you've never really done stand-up? Or? Not really. Okay. I would like to get back into it. It's part of my Im- imminent plan. It just makes me poop my pants with fear <laughs> a little bit. So got to get over that a little bit. Got to clean up the... Yes, uh, yes. Clean up the poopy and okay. then just get on stage. But you really enjoyed improv and you enjoyed the well, group. So improv is, yes, there's a group dynamic and you have no idea what you're going to do and yeah. you essentially take suggestions from the crowd and you build scenes out of it. And, the, and in the States, at least, it's a very particular craft and it's a way that almost all of the Saturday Night Live people come out of that school rather than from okay. stand-up. Uh, you know, it's, it has a great kind of heritage in the States, and I think it's a terrific way of honing your ability to listen and your ability to communicate and generate repartee and to think on your feet in a way that stand-up isn't. Stand-up is more performative. Yes. Um, So what was happening at the time? I basically had parked it. I really didn't... I just didn't... Well, you had a lot of other stuff going on. had a lot of other stuff going on. And, yeah, all I can say is I didn't think it played... And you had to feed yourself and pay bills. I had to feed myself... Look, in hindsight, to be perfectly honest, I think my career would have been easier and it would have been a more direct route to get where I wanted to go if I'd just sucked it up and gone and d- done stand-up originally in the very, very beginning and hadn't gone and worked for Alan Jones when what I really wanted to do was perform. Mm. But you don't get to live your life over again. Because, I mean, if you look at a person like Charlie Pickering or Will Anderson or my colleagues here, they were just a, a direct shot. They didn't have to wander through Australian Idol and, uh, you know, Channel One News in order to end up... I mean, they're a little bit older than me, but, you know, the, the, the fact remains. Comedy was always just this kind of spectre for me, which was something that I sort of would like to toy with, but never struck me as the most direct route to get where I want to go. Whether or not that was the right call, we'd have to replay the story of my life 
in an alternate universe yes. to know. Okay. And just to people who might have seen a promo for this podcast and the mention of Will Anderson, we will come back to Will Anderson too. Oh, okay. He, his name will uh, appear in a little bit more detail further on. Now, okay, now I've been accused of burying the headline before and I've probably done it again today, but HuffPost Live. Yes. Okay, so that's probably where a lot of people might start their interviews with you. Yeah. Um, you launched it or...? I was, was. I did not. I, I was not personally responsible for its creation, but okay. I was on the team before it launched and was was part of the the team which um, which brought it into which birthed it. Yeah. Okay. So how did you get a gig with HuffPost? That was. Um, Were they looking for a person to do this? Yes. Or, okay. Yes, that's right. So, the the sort of backstory to HuffPost Live was Ariana Huffington, the creator of the Huffington Post co-created HuffPost originally with her partner, um, her business partner, Roy Seekoff, her creative partner. And Roy was the editor-in-chief of the Huffington Post. And HuffPost had been around for, I guess, about five years at the time and had really dominated American uh, online print media by radically sort of reinventing what newspapers could be online. And Roy was, was sort of a pioneer in that space, which yeah, is now was. pretty crowded, right? Yes, that's right. That's right. Um, Roy was thinking, well, what, if you were going to do the same thing to television news, what would that look like? I mean, the thought experiment sort of was if if you were going to build conversations about what's going on in the world, which is what news is, from scratch in 2012, and you didn't know anything about television broadcasting or radio, you didn't, you weren't inheriting all of the baggage of tradition, what would it look like? Well, it probably wouldn't be a middle-aged white guy talking at you for half an hour in the evenings, <laughs> would it? <laughs> right? It would be something that's a bit more participatory. It'd be interactive. It'd be crowdsourced in some way. It'd be less sort of just dry information about things and more opinions about what's going on, more conversations about things, more what we used to call the thing about the thing conversations, so not conversations that are directly about the most imminent news story, but about some issue that that, that that raises. That's sort of what we were interested in. And they thought, okay, let's try doing this. So they threw a lot of money into two big studios with three sets each in LA and New York, 12 hours a day of live streaming of half hour segments. Um, they were interviews with celebrities, they were news segments, they were interviews with newsmakers, people could chime in, people could jump in on webcam and communicate in real time with us and the guests. I say us because I wasn't the only presenter, well, I wasn't doing 12 hours a day <laughs> of hosting. Just felt like uh, Yeah, uh, there were six of us okay. uh, in New York and I was, and so it, it, this is all a long way of saying how did I get it, I mean how did I get it, I, the, the true answer is I don't actually no, they liked me and I liked them and yeah. I was interested in this space in television. Did you have an agent? Yes. Pitch so I had yourself an, to them? That's right. So, so yeah, I had okay. an agent and um, uh, I think they sent my, uh, my reel because, you know, okay. basically all you need is an agent, a show reel of, of highlights of what you've done and a headshot and a resume and that is the currency of... of all of the entertainment industry and news industry essentially in the United yes. States and when you have that it just gets thrown around and floated around and it's all a bit of a black box to me it's a bit opaque I don't know how I don't know all I know is they sent it over they said I was interesting but weren't sure and then my agent 
And then they called my agent a few months later, not about me, saying, we're still having trouble filling this sixth spot. We've got a black male, we've got a Latina woman, we've got a, Repu- a sexy Republican woman, we've got a male lawyer, and we want like a wild card, slightly different, like, can be a white male, but we just don't want the cheesy conventional presenter type. And my agent said, well, what about Josh, the Aussie? Mm. And they said, perfect. <laughs> Good. Now, let's fast forward. Now, it ran for a while, didn't it? Yeah, it, it went for, for basically four years. I mean, to be honest, it, they still claim that it exists, which is really? amusing. Yeah, the okay. brand still exists, but the wheels started coming off at about, about three years in, I would say. And did they just pull the plug one day on the main... Uh, or not, did it just not wind down gradually? Uh, a series, I mean, it was death by a thousand cuts, basically. Mm. Yeah, it was a monstrous miscalculation and mismanagement. Now, miscalculation because it didn't make them any money or um, didn't get the traffic? Miscalculation. Which I guess is a connection there, obviously. Miscalculation because they didn't, they weren't able to, make, to, to stay nimble in a field that's changing very quickly. So in 2012, it seemed like a reasonable idea to build a big studio and do 30-minute segments. If you use the same thought experiment that I did, uh, <laughs> that I mentioned a few minutes ago, of, of doing news from scratch, not knowing anything about the history of news, and you did that in 2017, no one would say that you'd be doing a 30-minute interview. You'd be doing something fast. It'd be mobile. It'd be remote. It'd be, you know, it'd be quicker. Now, I think we're going too far in that direction, and I think it's going to swing back, and there'll be some, uh, you know, some middle ground found. But I think the fundamental problem was that they just didn't... There was... I mean, HuffPost had been bought by AOL, which is a telecommunications company. You were there during that, yep, that sale? Which, uh, no, that was actually was before... It? Believe it or not, oh, that, that was, was before HuffPost oh, Live. Okay. And then last year, 2015, um, AOL was bought by Verizon, which is the biggest telecommunications company in America, and I was there for that. And that was, for me, really the the nail in the coffin because when you've got business tycoons who are focused exclusively on quarterly profits uh, dictating the funding of something that really needs to have a longer term point of view I knew that I knew that there was no way that we were going to be able to implement the reforms that we that we would have to did that not help secure well it's um Sounds like it didn't, but uh, and you don't have to tell me how much. But was it good money? Were you getting yeah. good money? And did yeah. it make a difference after the sale, or no? Or be- they were paying decent. No, they were already paying good money because that were- internet um, age of publishers does have a bit of a rep of being a bit miserly, yeah. not rewarding contributors probably, but that wasn't an issue there? No, not at all. That's the weird thing about HuffPost. A lot of these places, you know, they have the blog side of things. So the, a lot of people a lot of people aren't consciously aware of the, the different sort of verticals in HuffPost. So there's, there's actually there's the journalistic operation of HuffPost, which has won, won Pulitzer Prizes and pays very, very well and is quite experimental. Um, and then there's the blog, which is supposed to be just a forum for anybody to talk and publish themselves about whatever it is that they want to discuss. And the blog, the blog writers don't get paid. What what really didn't work was the, was there a, still a demand for video in a huge like, demand for video, huge demand. But the video. But just, so what what didn't work was people don't sit down and watch a thirty minute interview on their phones. Uh, and they 
They don't. Yeah. Uh, one of the one of the gambles that HuffPost had been HuffPost Live had been making was that people would be in the future getting their uh, information and their media from many many different sources. So the idea was that your iPhone's going to end up full of all of these different apps, and people will watch HuffPost Live on a HuffPost Live app. They'll watch all kinds of different things on different different apps. What has happened, of course, is the reverse: that people are getting their their content from fewer and fewer places. Most people get a majority of their online videos exclusively through Facebook or right. you know a handful of different apps. Yeah, that was what didn't work. But what was working and what could still have been could still have worked was the money that HuffPost Live made was from clipping highlights out of the longer form segments that we were doing, okay, and then putting those embedding those into articles and writing them up on the on the conventional site. So if I'm interviewing, I don't know, Michael Moore or someone like that, yeah, there may be vanishingly small numbers of people watching us. Although I must say, it's still it's still in the tens or hundreds of thousands. I mean, it wasn't nothing. It's still yeah. more than Andrew Bolt gets on Sky News, you know? <laughs> um, more than a lot of people uh, get here, yeah. Yeah, and then... But then w- what would happen is they'd clip the little clip of Michael Moore saying something interesting about the election. They'd write an article about that, and then that clip would would uh, would be embedded in that little two or three minute clip would be embedded in that article, and that would get twenty million views in twenty four hours, oh. and that makes money. Yeah. So there must have been you must have got some amazing times there because you've got the HuffPost is a great name mm. would have really helped getting some great guests. What are the you know if you Think back to the highlights. The did you have pinch yourself moments where you think, God, I'm so oh, almost here. every day, <laughs> almost every day. Honestly, really? it was yeah. incredible. It's fantastic. Yeah, in that you know, right in the heart of Manhattan, having just incredible guests all the time, and not always famous guests either. No. I mean, you know, some of my most ama- most interesting. I mean, you had to interview with... not famous people. Oh, mate, <laughs> come on, must have been awful. It was beneath me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, but like you know, I, I interviewed Naftali Bennett, who's the head of the um, Jewish Home Party in Israel, which is mm-hmm. the most reactionary right wing. I mean, the party that doesn't even agree with a two state solution, right? They believe in a one state solution, which is just keep all of Palestine. Um, uh, incredibly charming guy, funny guy, and trying and playing the 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 game of chess that is having a conversation with someone who I disagree with so strongly. Uh, but um, in an affable way, but also a, a provocative way and holding him to account. Those moments were moments where uh, I was just incredibly grateful, a lot more grateful than when I was sitting down with Susan Sarandon or, okay. you know, some pop star. Yes, yeah, but you did plenty of that too, right? Yeah, yeah. So what did that... So that really polished up your CV, though, getting all that on there, right? Yeah, I mean, that becomes one... Because you could have pulled one... <laughs> out a, an A-list of, um, oh, look, he's interviewed, and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, blah, blah. the list of, uh, of, of celebrity interviews is pretty... Uh, it makes me makes me impressed by my pay, by myself on paper. Right. <laughs> I'm like, wow, that yeah. must have been incredible. Oh, that was me. Yes, which yeah. is what you need to do if you're selling yourself, don't you? Cause yeah, I mean, in some so ways... so good putting on that all people have people I, never heard of. That's true, but in some ways I sort of outlasted my own welcome on that front because, <laughs> like, once you... I did over... A, I'd done over a 1,000 hours of really? live wow. content, uh, you know, eight hours a day for, for five days a week for more than three years interviewing hundreds and hundreds of guests uh, that sort of... It beca- there becomes a, a diminishing return, right? I mean, 
how long a showreel do you want to watch? Like, you're only going to watch four minutes anyway. And what am I going to do, just put in a half second of every celebrity guest that I've done? Did that change you much as a broadcaster, that totally. experience? Yeah, yeah, totally. What, I think it was a steep... What did you, how did you come out different? Did you, um, did you want to pursue something that was more, more you or anything? Or yes. I think it gave me immediate uh, confidence that I wasn't crazy to think that I bring something to an interview that a lot of people don't. Uh, that might sound incredibly pretentious, but so be it. <laughs> uh, and I think it uh, just the practice. I mean, it's like the Malcolm Gladwell, like 10,000 hours of practice principle. I mean, just to get to a state, to rapidly, to be constantly thrown into scenarios in which you have to be thinking on your toes about such a massive different range of things. I mean, whether it's interviewing, like I interviewed the, one of the biggest coal tycoons in the United States who was facing charges and is now in jail, I, I believe, unless he's gotten, gotten, uh, gotten out by now, um, for an explosion, for the worst, worst mine explosion at his shonky, he ran these shoddy shonky mines all over Appalachia. And, and, and I mean, we're laughing, but people died. Mm. Uh, and to be interviewing him in the morning and then in the afternoon to be interviewing Jeremy Irons or something, that... That simply by even if you, even if you weren't trying to do it well, you would end up being good at it. Just insofar as you no longer have to think about how to read prompter, you know, have to, no longer have to think about where the cameras are. Like all of the things that can feel clunky in broadcasting become second nature. So it's, I guess it's a little bit like flying an old World War Two plane or something. Like once all of the knobs and the and everything are just, you don't even have to think about them. Then you can focus exclusively on what is this interaction that I'm having with this human being, and what's the most interesting place to pivot to next. I'm picturing something that might have been a cross between the over-interviewing they do on big network TV, you know, they do the pre-interview and, mm. you know, all this malarkey and it's almost scripted, as opposed to edge-of-your-pants stuff. So you would have got sort of in between, you would have had some producers and We had a good production and team. stuff like that, but not overly... I usually, I prefer less, yeah, mm. I prefer less hand-holding and less pre-production um, and less planning and that was another thing that I just sort of learnt on the job when you, when you say like how did it help me as a broadcaster you know don't the more you try to force something the less it's going to want to happen I mean it's it's like a truism we had Russell Brand on the show and it was probably the perhaps the greatest interview of, of my life and the most terrifying interview I'd ever done he had he had just had a terrible experience on MSNBC on their morning show with people who didn't know him asking facile questions and he demolished <laughs> them, just dem demolished them so much that Mika Brzezinski, who, who's the host of, the, of that show, was she couldn't even throw to an ad break. She was so traumatised by it. And I didn't know any of this, but he came on ready for a, a fight. I said, I said something like, you know, when you're on a tour, do you change your shtick from from city to city? He was like, "Let's not call it shtick, Josh." <laughs> and I thought, within a few minutes, I thought, "Oh bloody hell, I'm going to have to either find a way to ride this bucking horse, or I'm going to get completely trampled as well." And I did ride it, and it worked, and it paid off. And he and I became very close. And he came back to the show a year later, and my producer said oh, why don't we put together a, a cut of highlights of the, all the crazy things that you and he did last time? And I was busy and I wasn't paying much attention. I wasn't thinking about it. And so we played that 
And of course, the second interview stank. It wasn't any good. Mm. And it just, that's just one example of a learning lesson as a broadcaster where, of course, if you want a person to perform, don't set them up and go, all right, dance, monkey, just like you did last time. Look how amazing you were last time. Give us more of this. Well, they're going to recoil then, aren't they? Yeah. Just one of many, many hard lessons I, <laughs> I learned. Part of me likes to go into, I mean, it's, I hate talking to people like when you came in, we didn't really talk. We just sat down and turned, because it's, I, you just can't ask stuff twice, can you? And That's I right. like saving the small talk for, for when you're old. Sure. You know, it's yeah. often, it's often it can be the best part of the thing. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And it makes it more real. And it's sort of nice. I mean, I've got the barest of sort of research here about you, but I, I just, there's something about sitting down and almost not knowing anything about someone. Then you, I think you probably ask the right questions. You just, you want to get it all out of them, you know? Yeah, I agree. So it's, but yeah. it, it can be dangerous though, but if you just, if you ask the wrong stuff, I think. Um, if there are landmines, <laughs> if there, <laughs> yes. If someone's been convicted of murdering their child and you're yes. not aware of that going yes. in and you ask them how their kid is, <laughs> then that could be problematic. Yes, yeah. But there's, but I guess you, you sort of ask things. You're clever with your questions, aren't you? You don't ask things that probably could get you into trouble. No, I, I do. You don't. Or do you? No, I do. I do. I don't, I don't think that's a... I think that's part of why people listen to interviews, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. The, the the possibility that... I mean, I've never liked the idea of... There but being... I find it awkward watching an interview where the interviewer gets in... In strife. Well, that's because, the interviewer, that's because the interviewer isn't handling the crisis well. I suppose, yeah. Isn't it? Yeah. yeah. I mean, if, if the interviewer is, is good... Maybe I think, gee, that could be me, and it probably has been <laughs> in the past. <laughs> and how lucky am I that that's not me there now, you know? But well, yeah. I mean, if it's, if, it's a, if it's a situation in which the interviewer has put their foot in it because they've revealed that they have no bloody idea what they're talking about yeah. or who they're talking to, yeah. then they deserve to be hanged because they're not doing their job. Go um, easy on me, all right? <laughs> <laughs> but if it's an awkward situation because they're probing something which ordinarily in polite conversation you wouldn't yeah, discuss yeah, with course. somebody, yes. then I think that's great, great broadcasting. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. Don't tread carefully from now on. <laughs> Okay, post um, HuffPost Live. How long since you were at HuffPost? January. So it's it's, it's new. Relevant. It's new. Yeah. You know, so I've got no idea what I'm doing, am I? Yeah. So it's it's very odd. I just had a feeling it was it was sort of over a bit longer ago. Okay. Uh, well, it's just the times we live in, though. I guess I'm always amazed by stuff that happens. And it seems like it was because so many things are happening now and well, that's changing right. quickly. I mean, and like a year ago in is like. So it's, a much happens, yeah, yeah, it's a long time. Yeah, it's a long time. I mean, basically what I've been doing is, try, is figuring out how to take the knowledge and the lessons that we were just talking about from HuffPost Live and, and use that to figure out what the next incarnation of a smart, funny conversation yes. would be. Mm-hmm. And I think podcasting is the most interesting place to do that. Well, not just the most interesting place to do that. It's the only place I have to, to do that. I mean, I can't, I can't go to a, a network and say... I want to do this show and I want it to be exactly how I want it to be and I want you to give me six to 12 months to figure out, to iron out all the kinks and figure out exactly what is going to make it work and what the right combination of guests are and how much interactivity we should have and how much social media um, participation we should have and what kinds of stories we should select. No, and then, What crazed 
network executive would greenlight such a show. Whereas in, in Podland, you can just go out and do it. Yes. So yeah. I created I created this. Okay. Well, that's, space. this is perfect segue into this. Um, now I'm I know that this is going to sound a bit like podcasters talking to podcasters which is it is which fuels pretty much <laughs> much of the podcast um, that actually industry is doesn't the it? entire <laughs> podcast world it's basically just all of us going on each other's shows yeah, absolutely but now so it's hashtag we the people live yes my is the is live part of the hashtag or is no. that it's a hashtag <laughs> I mean the we hashtag, the people, people I mean that's a, bit, a crazy question but it's important for when bit, socials people are get a bit hung up on the hashtag <laughs> to be honest the hashtag is something I pulled out of my bum to make it feel a bit more <laughs> like it a social sort of media driven putting a, a little bit yeah there. a little bit it's like look how look how hip we are uh, that we've got a hashtag in front of our name it, it actually has it also has the upside that it's at the top of everybody's podcast list <laughs> yeah. right because it comes before before A in the alphabet um no, but if you want to, if people want to look, want to search for it, you can. Ju- you don't need the hashtag. If no. you make "we the people" all one word, yep. then it should come up. If you make "we the people" three words, then you get all these <laughs> weird American Tea Party Republican conservative podcasts talk, talking about the Constitution. Uh, but yeah, "we the people" all one word, and then live. Okay, I've got lots of podcast questions for you now. The graphics you've got, if if good graphics drive traffic. You should be getting some good numbers. Oh, thank you. Because I just love the how, how. Just is there a backstory to that? Did you do it yourself? I well, didn't do what, it myself. But you uh, paid a designer. It looks great. I paid a graphic designer, um, and I just found a similar thing to, that that I kind of liked the look so of. So you gave I, them a, a broad. And I gave them idea. what I wanted it to look okay. like, and she she made it. She's great. That's fantastic. Oh, well, she also but, did the poster for the live version, the live show, which I'm doing. Um, I don't know when when's this going to going to drop because but I'm this doing a live pretty show. Pretty much. On, uh, yeah. Next yeah. week. Yeah, yep. good. On Sunday, the 18th of December okay. at the Chasers Theatre at uh, Giant Dwarf. Oh, wonderful. Okay, mm. it's here in Sydney. Yeah, here in Sydney. First um, uh, Sydney show. Episode 67 was published, I think, almost exactly a week ago, give or take a couple of days. Does that mean it's been going a little over a year? Do you drop one a week? Do you a bit more we, than we, that? We, we tend to drop more than one a week when we can, yep. and we have been lately. Uh, it's been a little bit spotty in, in the past few weeks because I've been flying and travelling and so on. Um the numbering of the episodes, we don't always number the bonus episodes. So I think we're around about okay. the hundredth, the hundredth thing that we've dropped. But sixty-seven probably refers to the sixty-seventh uh, show in roughly the format of what the flagship show should be, which right. in its original incarnation, which I haven't even mentioned to people yet. The the, in, the original conceit of the show is. I get together with three interesting people in a bar in Brooklyn and okay. in front of a live audience and we, we banter about the news, drinking cocktails, taking questions and comments from the crowd and from social media. Okay, but they're uh, not all that. But they're not they? all that no. because that's a logistically difficult thing to pull off. Absolutely. And um, if and when we're making money and have great sponsorship and I can employ an army of flying monkeys to make it happen, we will do that every week. But until then, we do it roughly every other week. What is – it's um, – you're not afraid of being nerdy or being intellectual sort of on here, are you? No. I, I know, that mightn't mean much, but um, like intersectionality. Yeah. A lot of <laughs> – and I had to listen to a couple of times, you know, I had to stop and go, I want to go back and just check this bit. Um, and it was what a – I don't know the people, but a Republican feminist. A, That's right. A so Democrat feminist. Yeah, so Car- the, la- the, mo- the most recent episode was – an attempt to... I think one of the big things that was raised this year in Trump's 
uh, election and is part of the sort of populist wave that we've seen in the rise of one nation, the resurrection of one nation here and also Brexit in the UK and the Italian referendum going south last week. Um, I think part of one of the big themes is identity politics versus um, uh, conventional uh, aspirations of the left. So that, that sounds a bit abstract, but the, the debate on the left about the extent to which um, the left should be pursuing traditional policies that simply try to bolster the working class, you know, economic policies, or whether it should be about social justice and about the advancement of, of minorities and people of colour and, and gay rights and trans rights and so on. And I think part of the Trump phenomenon was a backlash against the balkanisation of American politics that the left is partly responsible for. So I wanted, this is all a long-winded way of explaining what last week's episode was about, yep. which was getting a white Republican feminist and a feminist of colour on the left to discuss the extent to which they think about themselves as minorities or not. And, and intersectionality is a, is a phrase that gets used by minorities, uh, especially feminists, to, mm. to, to make the point that you can't disentangle feminist, the feminist movement from other minority movements, that you have to see the intersection between struggles, between minor, minority struggles on various different platforms in order to achieve true justice. And that's a, uh, a political movement that can be controversial because it's all about particular identities asserting their right to to um to to conceive of themselves as identities and people can find that divisive folks if you want more of this abc local radio <laughs> <laughs> from no, next I'll week raining, you'll, you'll I'll be raining that talk in we're going to be talking about you'll about christmas some, present wrapping you'll on, get into uh, some read detail on that um <laughs> we're only just skimming the surface here this is why i don't talk about shit like intersectionality i let my guests do it and then i go huh <laughs> Um, yeah, so look, there's some amazing stuff in this, and I won't pretend... It's actually, the show is actually not as boring as the last three minutes of me talking was. Yeah, no, no, it's, it, it, it's fascinating stuff, but there's some stuff, I mean, you've covered, you, you cover some Aussie stuff for your American audience, like I think Charlie Pickering and Will Anderson, so we'll get back to the Will Anderson reference, both did a, a podcast with I'm fascinated to know where we're going with Will Anderson. You keep dropping these little breadcrumbs well, no. of Will Anderson. Like, why the fuck are well, we talking about Will Anderson? <laughs> okay. Well, he's just no, good keep, on socials. No, no, bury, bury and I, it. And my people here tell me, look, if you keep the lead put, a, put a Will Anderson hashtag in as one of the subjects... <laughs> Really? When, during our Josh Zets. <laughs> um, then people will listen. Yeah, well, no, it'll just bring you some extra listeners in, perhaps. Okay, you know, good. So. We'll get Will to retweet it. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Will. Um, yeah, so I interviewed Will for, yes. a, for an episode and I interviewed Charlie for an episode after the Correct. Australian election. To, yes, yeah. yeah. But otherwise, the, the whole Trump thing has uh, powered this podcast for a lot of the year, hasn't it? It has, yeah. yeah. I mean, it was <laughs> grudgingly. <laughs> Grudging, honestly, grudgingly. I was really looking forward to the election being over mm. and to no longer having to pay any attention to him because he would be a failed... Uh, Were you a surprise as anyone? I was. Yeah. I was. I ha which makes me feel... I mean, feel, in hindsight, it sort of makes sense. It I makes guess, total sense it? in yeah, hindsight. And it even made sense in foresight earlier in the year. Mm. I wrote an article uh, which was published in the ABC in, in their um, opinion section, The Drum, which I think no longer exists, um, uh, shortly after I, I did, I was on Q and A in February or March with Alan Sorry, Jones yes. and Penny Wong, and after that, I was sort of inspired to explain Trump to Australian audiences. So I write, a, I wrote a piece entitled, I think, "Trump absolutely positively cannot win," and then in parentheses, probably, 
which was which was saying the conventional wisdom is that he can't win, and there are all kinds of statistical reasons why he can't win, but he is not a person, and we are not in a climate that is conducive to conventional statistics, that there is an X factor going on here, which could change the equation completely. I sort of alluded to that scene in the castle where the lawyer goes, it's about the vibe, you know, it's about the, it's about the vibe of the law. You know, sometimes it's not about... It's not about um, specific policies. It's about the vibe of the guy. And, the, and in hindsight, as you say, it's so obvious that a, a wooden, polished, status quo candidate who's been part of the American political elite for 30 years at a time of populist uprisings would not be an appealing candidate. I mean, remember, Trump did not, out, did not perform very well in this election. He didn't get very many votes. He got about the same number as Mitt Romney, I think, mm. did. And the population has grown since then. Yes. And he lost the popular vote. Uh, but Hillary Clinton just couldn't pull off the, the sale. It was she, close, though. I mean, it wasn't a huge difference in the popular vote, was it? It was like... Oh, no, it's, bi- it's, the biggest, a, it's the biggest difference ever in the history of the US, if that's really? close. Yeah, it's more than 2 million votes now. It's more than 2 million votes. Yeah, oh, okay. that Hillary's ahead. Wow. I mean, that's you know, half of New Zealand yes. <laughs> that, that voted for Hillary instead, yes. instead of him. But, she, but that being said, she still didn't do a very good job. I mean, the, no. the bottom line story of the election for me is that counties that had voted for Obama twice voted for Trump mm. or stayed home. Yeah, yeah. Um, I could ask you so many questions about that and we'd be here all day, but let's, um, let's talk a few podcast things that interest me and I think will interest some of our listeners. Can you... First of all, do you know much about Podcast One, that... I think it's a they um, it's a network of podcasts, and they try bring them all together, monetize them. It's going to be launched here in Australia shortly. So that's why I was just wondering if um, no, I we do have a podcast network yeah. um, that we are hosted by, and there are. Um, do they look for sponsorship deals? Yes, that's but, right. Okay. So that's basically all they really do. They're just a. Um, they save us the hassle of trying to sell ads against the show. Okay. Uh, have they found one for you yet? or? Uh, well, so they put ads. They, they, they have a dynamic... You don't do live... I haven't heard you do a live read. Um, so I... we started out doing... I do want to do that. I think the best... Because they always say that's the, those ads work best. They do. In a... So I do do live reads. I don't know how they get um, uh, distributed here in Australia because one of the things that the network that we're currently with, Acast, does is dynamic insertion of advertising. So okay. meaning that... Um, it's not like you just put out an audio file of the podcast and then the ads that are in that are in it right. will be in it in perpetuity. It means that at, on, at any given instant, this, exactly the same file could be listened to by two different people, and they could get delivered different ads hmm. so depending on I'm, when and where they're if listening. If they sense I'm in California, they won't promote me something's happening in. That's New York, right. For so, I, so I've done live reads, for example, for Canadian products that only get distributed to Canadian. Okay. listeners and so on wow. um so i don't know what ads people hear here in australia but in the states i do do i do do a number of live reads but those are still the income from that is still on a cpm basis so it's still a, it's still a number of dollars that i get per thousand listeners what i think is in some ways a more sensible funding model and sponsorship model is just to get a company to back a season of the show mm. and talk about them and discuss them on the show this is what we did when we first launched the show we got a vodka company and a beer okay. company to sponsor the show because we're in a bar and we just say we're drinking cocktails thanks to you know x uh vodka what was the beer brand well they're not brand. paying us anymore oh. 
But this is our podcast. You're going to do an ad for a company that's not paying me anymore. <laughs> it was called Speakeasy, Speakeasy, Speakeasy. Ales. Uh, in, it's an American. Uh, Sounds like a boutique brewery. Yeah, but, or yeah that's right. Thing, exactly, yeah. a little, a little one. Um, it's interesting the, the the funding model for podcasting. I won't launch into that. No. But we can talk about that if you want to. Yeah, but you think that you, do you you envisage eventually you could you know turn this into a part of your. Um, your revenue stream? Yes. To make it worthwhile? Um, do you mean uh, like a sponsorship again? Yeah, yeah, yeah. podcast yeah. where it's you might you know, might do yes. a number of things. Absolutely. I mean, I, th- I see a few revenue streams. One is um, the insertion of, of you know, 30-second ads, a pre-roll, a mid-roll, and, and, and a post-roll. Um, I'd like to launch a premium version of the show that where yeah. people can opt out of that because I find ads personally quite annoying, and I, I do pay for podcasts that uh, that don't have them. Right. Um, I'd like to do a sponsorship where, you know, for 12 weeks of the show, you're, you're talking about um, a company that has a more intimate relationship because there is a trust, there is a real trust thing with podcasts. I do think that people feel like if I talk about something on the show that I'm not going to just have taken any sponsor and that it's, that's true in a way that wouldn't be true of an ad that just happens to get inserted in an ad break. Um, and then there are like premium models and, and, and that sort of thing. And there's also yeah. stuff like Patreon. I don't know if you have Patreon here, but that's a way for it's a way for listeners to actively support the podcast. Okay. How DIY is um, We the People Life? I mean, is it just you? I have a producer have... Um, who is fantastic, Grant Irving. Is his name and I was uh, say Graham, but it's Grant. So I was close with a G. Grant. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I have nothing. T- I, I I I manage the thirty thousand foot creative vision of the show. Yeah. And he's terrific at recording it, releasing it, dealing oh, with all great, the RSS yeah, stuff yeah. that I don't want to have to think about, um, and sort of booking the guests and reminding me where to be at what time. Right. Okay. Do you look after your own socials or? Uh, I happen to be married to a man who's a, an amazing social media. Oh, really? Uh, so he is the. So you got a bit of help there. I've got a yeah. My social media manager is a professional social media director. Oh, fantastic. Um, <clears throat> I that that will be the next step though. I'd like to get someone once we've got a little bit more money. That'll probably be the first thing to start spending money on is an actual social media full, you know person who can. Yeah. Just quickly, and again, this is another path we could get stuck on for hours. Social media is. Could you see future for Twitter? There's so. much debate about that, you know. It's, it's, there is. It seems to be turning into a... I mean, it's obviously media... A lot of media people are on Twitter. Sometimes you wonder, is there anybody mm. not in the media mm. on Twitter? Is it, you know... I don't know. I don't they, know. They, they, I'm think, not... they seem to think live streaming might be their silver bullet, it's, but I'm not sure. I mean, I don't... <sighs> I'm the wrong person to ask about that, James, because I'm, I'm bad at prognosticating about people's habits on social media. Um, it, I hope that Twitter remains the small, boutique, cliquey, simple service that it is yes. and that that's good enough. Now, it, it's not making money, which is a problem, but I think if they try to jump on all kinds of whiz-bang bandwagons and compete with Facebook and Snapchat, uh, then you're going to lose the dynamism of what makes Twitter. It's this, it's, it functions because of its simplicity. Yes. Hmm. So yeah, I don't, know what, I don't know what happens to it. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Okay, so what, what's next for you? I mean, what do you, as well as your podcast, what else is happening in, in your world these days? It's basically just the podcast. That's what I want it to be. I, I want to find a way to uh, – well, I mean, 
so obviously um, the, the, the ultimate vision would be to, to have a television show that is also an internet show, that is also a podcast, right, and that, and that genuinely finds a way to unite all of these different strands of, of media. Because I, I think someone's going to do this. Everyone knows someone's going to do this. Everyone's trying to do it. And we're all like, we're all just wandering around in a darkened room, bumping into the furniture, not quite knowing how. You know, right. like I feel like media in the twenty first century is a is a baby deer that's just been birthed and is trying to stand up and is covered in blood and goo. Right. And we're trying to and and we're still we're still got wobbly legs. And someone is going to start running and sprinting. And what I mean by that is not that people haven't tried uniting conventional television with social media of course they have you turn on cnn yes. and they'll do a segment and then they'll say and now let's see what <laughs> what dickhead 43 has to say on twitter and they read out some stupid tweet <laughs> and they think that that's that's unified that's not what i'm, what I'm talking about mm. i'm talking about the tw- the 20th the, the the attributes of conventional old school broadcasting 20th century broadcasting of in other words credibility uh professionalism um, a certain lavishness of production. If you can find a way to genuinely unite that with the 21st century spirit of social media, rambunctiousness, unexpectedness, chaos, uh, interaction, interactivity, then we're going to look back in 20 years and say, oh, this, that was the first show that really managed to bridge that divide and now we've got a whole new type of media that we're all routinely consuming i really think that's going to happen so right. my modest goal is to change the world by, that all? T- by turning where the people live Easy. into that thing but i don't know exactly how but I, but there are lots of people who seem to be interested would in you helping. take like a straight media gig again? yeah you, yeah i mean if i up? look to be perfectly honest uh, you know, if if the ABC or Channel Ten called and said, "Why don't you just do?" Well, it depends what you mean by straight. Well, it depends what I you guess mean by straight. If they wanted me to host, not podcast, <laughs> like yes, more, absolutely, like convention. You know, I would absolutely like, like old world media, whatever they. Yes, no, I mean, I would, I would absolutely. If if look, if uh, if if they hadn't given the project to Waleed, then I'd be posting the project right now. Um, it came down to the, the two of us. So, did you put up your hand for that? Yeah, I'd like to do that. Yep, you would have moved back here for that. Yep, wow. yep. Uh, in fact, I'm sort of thinking just for lifestyle reasons, I'm, I wouldn't mind spending more time in Australia anyway, which okay. is why I'm sort of doing ABC radio down here. And right. I do, th- I am thinking of myself professionally as being based in Australia. Do you have management Australia. here? Uh, no, I don't at the moment. Okay. Yeah. So anyone out yeah. there who's... Uh, <laughs> There's an opportunity <laughs> for, for some wants to manage me in Australia. I don't, to be honest, without sounding like a snob, I don't hugely need it. Right, okay. I can email, like, the ABC and, like... Q&A knows me and, you know, yes, the network you've got your own contact know list me. And yeah, I don't know what the value add would be particularly, but, hey, prove no, me wrong. Maybe getting your price up. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's their job, I guess, the manager, isn't it? Get yeah, the, they get the price up by 20% and then they and take they it. they take it away, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. All right, now, so we can find you... We the People Live podcast, yes, obviously on iTunes. That's right. It's on iTunes course, and lot, everywhere. If you can't find it, just sound. It's on it? SoundCloud, SoundCloud. It's on Stitcher. It's on yep, you know Player yep. FM and all these little things that okay. seem fantastic to stuff. Exist. ABC Radio for a couple of weeks. Uh, three weeks. Three from weeks. Monday the twelfth, seven pm till ten pm. Seven pm to ten pm through okay. until the new year. Yep. 
Fantastic stuff. Uh, and the show and the live show 18. is on at the Chasers pod, at the Chasers Theatre, which is called Giant Dwarf, Giant Dwarf. which is in Sydney. Yep. On Sunday the eighteenth. And, and what can, can we expect at the live show? Oh, so that's going to be a panel not just about the week's news, but about the year, the year's news. Mm. It'll be me and four guests, and we're okay. calling it twenty sixteen. What the fuck went wrong? <laughs> <laughs> It'll be Rob Carlton, who, a great, uh, yes. great comedy writer and yep. Logie winning actor. Uh, Osher Gunsberg, who used yep. to be known as Andrew G. He was G. sitting in that chair um, oh. two weeks ago today. There actually. you go. Uh, he'll be joining us. Becky Lucas, who's a very funny comedian, and Michael Hing, who's a, a comedian. We'll do a, and a few other surprises up our sleeve. But people can get tickets to that by going to giantdwarf.com.au. And I'll show your colleague back from the Idol days. That's right, exactly. Yep. Yeah, we actually knew Fantastic. each other before Idol from, right, okay. from voiceovers. Yes, yep. Okay, wonderful stuff. Mm. Josh, look, thanks for coming in. It's a great pleasure. Great to meet you and um, look forward to seeing a bit more of you down under, mate. Cross fingers. Okay. (laughs) 